Okay, very good morning to all of you. And uh, why don't we go to God in prayer first as we prepare our hearts to listen to His Word. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, indeed there are very heavy and weighty words of warning. And we pray that as we listen today, uh, you will focus our minds, that you will block off any distractions, uh, to really meditate and reflect uh, what your Word is saying to us from the book of Hebrews. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I said that uh, one of our national characteristics, uh, one of the national characteristics of being Singaporean is uh, being kiasu. Okay? And uh, I guess kiasu is uh, the extreme fear of losing. It's that extreme competitiveness in which in every avenue, in every aspect of life, you don't want anybody to get ahead of you. And I guess you can see that on the roads, you know, like nobody wants to give way to you in the queues and getting the best deal, right? So this uh, extreme competitiveness, this kiasuism, is a reflection of, I guess, our national characteristics. But I also know of many Singaporeans uh, who are also uh, kiasi. Right? That means they are afraid of dying. Uh, not the normal sort of fear of dying where you avoid things like bungee jumping or parachuting, but in the sense where you actually meet some Singaporeans, and when I reflect on it, maybe I'm a bit like that, huh? Uh, where you are, you are afraid of so many things that you actually cannot enjoy life, right? So, you know, you cannot eat this, you cannot eat that, because you, you're afraid of dying. Now, in a sense, uh, being a kiasu and being a kiasi can be quite uh, negative things in life. Uh, they're not really things that you should aspire to, isn't it? Now, I think in today's passage, as we look at uh, God's Word, if there's anything that we really should be fearful of, if there's anything that we should really be genuinely uh, terrified of, it is of judgment. Uh, if we look at the first two verses, it really changes the tone from what we read last week to one of great warning and great uh, emotional weight in terms of what we should fear if we are no longer in Christ. It says in verse 26, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now here, as we look at this passage, um, it's not something that we look at intellectually. Uh, I think that sometimes when we look at the Bible, we can be rightly accused of you know, intellectualizing everything. But I think when we look at this passage, it is meant to have an emotional reaction. That the words there, the fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God is meant to actually strike fear in the reader. I remember um, this pastor that I heard many, many years ago. He was quite an elderly man at the time when I heard him. He said that when he reads his Bible during his quiet time, there are times where when he reflects on God's word, it actually terrifies him. And I think that if we read verse 26 and 27 and it doesn't terrify us, it doesn't strike our heart, then we're not really reading it rightly. Because the word there which says, fearful expectation of judgment, literally is the word terrible or awful expectation of judgment. Now I want you to think for a moment, when is the last time where you really feel this emotion of fearfulness, of awfulness, of a, a, a terrifying experience. Now, I think for myself, uh, when I was sitting preparing my sermon, 
I was thinking, well, the last time I really felt fearful and terrified was when I was sitting in the reception of the dentist. Okay, now I know some of you are dentists, so I don't mean to insult you or anything, but when I sit in the reception room of the dentist and I hear the whine of that drill, right? Right? It really fills me with great fear and trepidation. Because I sort of feel like, well, that could be me in maybe 10, 15 minutes, you know, lying there in the dentist chair, absolutely vulnerable with this sharp object spinning around in my mouth. Now, that sort of fear, really, that we feel or that I felt uh, in the dentist reception room is nothing, really, compared to what we should feel or people will feel if they know of the judgment and the raging fire that awaits them if they are an enemy of God. Because it's not just the intensity. Right? There is a sense of intensity which is much greater than the dentist drill here. I don't think God uses the word there, uh, raging fire that will consume the enemies of God uh, lightly. Right? That, that's what it will be like when, when we're actually in hell, that the fire of hell will consume us. And it's not just the intensity, but the duration. I know that today, uh, people try to minimize what hell will be like and say that, okay, maybe there's, there's no such thing as, as eternal damnation. Maybe people just die and instantaneously, that's it. There are no more. But I think biblically speaking, it's not just the intensity of hell, but it's the duration of hell that makes it so terrifying. And I think that uh, in Luke chapter 16, as we see here, uh, it sort of elaborates on what verse 27 is actually saying, isn't it? Uh, for anybody who understands even a small inkling of what hell will be like, uh, it will be a terrible thing. So in hell, where he was in torment, uh, this rich man looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So here as we look at verse 26, 27, uh, really as we were reading last week and as we read verse 26 and 27, there should be a real shocking contrast between what the Christian looks forward to in eternity to what the enemy of God looks forward to. Now I know that actually today uh, it is very politically incorrect to talk about hell and uh, damnation and fire to people. Um, I think that basically when people think of people who preach about hell and, 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 and you know, fire or whatever, uh, they, they have very caricatured and negative overtones in their minds. Right? Um, apparently there was a survey done in America and I think a lot of people believe in heaven but only a very small minority believe in hell. So here are some cartoons that I picked up from the internet. Right? So whenever you think of, right, if you, if you type down hellfire preacher, these are some of the pictures that you get, right? Okay? So you get this picture, next one. Okay, this picture, next one. So you, you, know, you think of it as a very old-fashioned idea of these people who are basically preaching about hell and fire. And these things are sort of old-fashioned. We've moved on from there. But I always remember this very famous evangelist in, America, uh, in Australia called John Chapman. And he shared once before about how he preached at an evangelistic talk. And after the talk, a man came up to him and said to him, Oh, you know, 
you're just trying to scare me to become a Christian. And John Chapman, uh, this uh, preacher, said to him, actually, I'm not trying to scare you into heaven. Uh, it is God who's actually telling you the reality of what is your destiny if you fail to have Jesus Christ in your life. And I always uh, think that it's a really logical, rational thing to do to realize how bad hell is. Uh, I've had people say to me, oh, don't worry about me. I can handle hell. Right? Uh, uh, I think I prefer to go to hell because all my friends are there. Have you ever, anybody ever said that to you before? Right? Uh, I think I prefer to go to hell because then I can do all the things that I enjoy. But that's, 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 a, that's a totally gross illusion of what hell will be like. Because hell is a terrible place. Now, as we've been looking at uh, the book of Hebrews, if we look at this passage just from verse 19 to 27, there are two types of people in this world, right? Uh, when God looks at this world, they're not uh, Chinese or Caucasians or you know, Spanish-speaking or English-speaking people or rich or poor. But there are only two sorts of people. And the first sort of people is found in verse 21, isn't it? The idea of where Jesus is, is priest over the house of God. So there's one one group of people, the people who belong to the house of God. And here, in verse 27, is the other group of people who are the enemies of God. So, next slide. Okay, so there are two sorts of people. Uh, the house of God, who are promised eternal Sabbath rest, and the enemies of God, who are promised here the raging fire of judgment for eternity. Now, as we look at this passage, it should be a bit shocking to us because from chapter 1 to 10, who is the audience of the book of Hebrews? The audience of the book of Hebrews are the house of God. Right from the very beginning, they are called the brothers and sisters right, in Christ. They are the ones who receive the blood of Jesus Christ. But I think that as we come to verse 26, we see that uh, the people who actually belong to the house of God are in danger of becoming the enemies of God. Because in verse 26 it says, If we deliberately keep on sitting after we've received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. So what was happening here is, the people in chapters 1 to 10 had received the knowledge of the truth. They had known about Jesus, whose blood washes them clean, they had known of Jesus who had opened the way for them to the most holy place. They had known of Jesus as the great high priest. But unfortunately, this knowledge had not translated into active faith and belief. There was a danger which they were falling back into their old way of living. And therefore, it says that they were deliberately continuing to sin. Now, how do people move, uh, next slide, from being the house of God to the enemy of God? Well, it's very straightforward, isn't it? Next slide. People are only part of the house of God, as we look from chapter 1 to 10, because of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, God looks at the people within the house of God and says, okay, these people are sinful they are wretched, they are evil, but Jesus has paid for their sins. The blood of Jesus has washed them 
and sanctified them and made them holy and righteous before me. And therefore they are now my house, they are my people. The problem is, if you take out Jesus, next slide, then immediately the house of God, the people of God become the enemies of God. It's just like that, right? It's like flicking a switch. Because the moment you take out Jesus, the sins of the people are no longer borne by Jesus on the cross, but they are now borne by the people themselves. And that makes them enemies of God. And that's why in the whole of Hebrews, next slide, uh, oh, I didn't, I didn't put that, the, the reference there. But if you look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, it will tell us, it keeps going on and on about how the blood of Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice for all of us. But if Jesus is no longer that once and for all sacrifice for us and we take away Jesus, then we now become the enemies of God. And that's why, oh, no, keep it up there, it's okay, not so fast. And that's why once these people continue to sin and sin against God, there was no more sacrifice or sins left because Jesus was off the table, he was gone, and now they become the enemies of God. Now, as we look at this passage, uh, the question should be, I guess, what does it mean to deliberately keep on sinning? Right? I mean, we know that when you lose Jesus, you now become an enemy of God. But at what point do you move from being the house of God to being the enemy of God? Now, the reason why people ask this question, what does it mean to deliberately keep on sinning? is because... I guess our Christian lives are marked with the struggle with sin. In the other parts of the Bible, like in 1 John, it says that the Christian life is trying to grow to become what we should be, holy and blameless, but at the same time we will fall, we will get up, we will confess our sins, seek forgiveness and strive again. Now I think that a normal Christian life is like that. Uh, There is sin, there is the recognition of sin, there is the confession of sin, there is the repentance, and the continuing on in the struggle for being a growing as a Christian. But I think that what this uh, passage is saying here about deliberately keep on sinning to the extent where you turn your back on Jesus is where people sin and you recognize there is sin but there is no repentance. You do not choose to turn away from your sin. It's a very different thing, you know. So if I know that I'm sinning and I don't want to sin, I try to stop sinning, I fall, I confess, I get up again, and I struggle, and I struggle, and this process continues on for the rest of my life, I think that's part of the Christian life. But there's a difference where someone says, I'm sinning, I recognize that I'm sinning, but I don't care. I will keep on sinning. I will choose sin over what Jesus tells me to do. There is a willfulness involved then that's what verse 26 is talking about, a deliberately choosing sin over God. Then actually, there is no sacrifice of sins left because you've turned your back on Jesus and you've turned to follow sin instead. And I think that that's what's so dangerous about being a nominal Christian, a Sunday Christian. Because people can still come to church but still be outside the house of God because they are deliberately sinning and turning their back on Jesus Christ. A while ago, I was speaking to someone who was living a life of sin, unfortunately. And I remember challenging this person. This person was still going to church, but yet 
this person still had an ongoing sin in his life. And I said to this person, I said, look, you know that what you're doing is wrong. You should stop doing it. And this person said, no, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I will still keep doing it. And this person still keeps going to church. Okay, they're not in this church, so you don't have to think of who it is, right? And this person still keeps going to church, even though in his life, he has given in to this sin in his life and will choose this sin rather than obedience to God. Now, I think this person is living very closely to verse 26. He is deliberately choosing to sin above his allegiance to Jesus Christ. And as a result, I think that he's very close to being an enemy of God and there is no sacrifice for sin left for him. Now, I wonder whether that's any of us. Whether there's any of us today where we come to church, maybe we go to Bible study, but yet we are not really part of the house of God because we have chosen to turn our back against Jesus because we choose something else which we know that Jesus doesn't want us to do. Well, literally, we are playing with fire, isn't it? We're playing with the fire of hell when we do that. When we choose to sin, when we choose a path which we know Jesus doesn't want us to go on and we willfully continue to do that and unrepentantly just keep going on that path. Now verse 28 tells us why it's so bad to follow this path. So bad to, to willfully choose to turn away from Jesus. In verse 28 it says, Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the, God, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now here, um, basically verse 28 to verse 29 uses a how much more argument. Okay, it's, it's a comparative argument. So it's a bit like saying, okay, if the fine for littering is, I don't know, $500, I presume it's $500, but there is a fine for littering, right? If the fine for littering is $500, then what must be the fine for murder or drug trafficking? It must obviously be more, isn't it? Because drug trafficking and murder are so much worse than littering. So that's the sort of argument that's being used here. And what is being said here is that, look, under the Old Covenant, under the Law of Moses, if you rejected the Old Covenant and the Law of Moses, then you were sentenced to, to death. Okay, next slide. Oh. oh, sorry, we missed this one. Okay, don't worry, keep going. Okay, so under the Old Covenant, under the law, if you rejected that, then the sentence was death. But the New Covenant has come. Right? The New Covenant in Jesus has come and, and it's so much greater than the Old Covenant. So if you rejected the Old Covenant and you got death, then if you reject the New Covenant, which is the reality, then you should reserve even something greater, which is eternal condemnation. Right, this is the copy and the shadow. You reject that, you get death. Then if, when the reality comes, how much more will your punishment be? Right, so, in the past, there was the priest, but Jesus is the great priest, remember? 
In the past, there was a sacrifice of lambs and bulls and goats, but now you have the perfect sacrifice in Jesus. So if you reject that, the reality, the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus and the Son of God coming, then how much more will your punishment be? So he goes on to say, first of all, that if you reject if you reject Jesus after you've come to the knowledge of truth, then what is it like? Well, in verse 29 it says, it's like trampling the Son of God underfoot. Now, he doesn't just say Jesus. He doesn't say the Christ. He says the Son of God. And it sort of brings our mind back to the very first verse of Hebrews, which tells us, next slide, just how great Jesus was, right? And who is Jesus, the Son of God? He was... He is, he is the one which God has spoken to us. He's the one who has been appointed heir of all things. And he's the one who, for whom the whole universe was made. And the Son is the radiance of the God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being. That means he's exactly God. He sustains everything by his powerful word. He has provided purification of sins. He now sits at the right hand of God. So therefore, if the Son of God is so mighty and powerful... What should be our response to this Son of God? We should welcome Him. We should thank Him. We should worship Him. But instead, it says here that if we know this knowledge but we fail to do those things, we trample on Him. Now, I was sort of thinking of uh, what do we trample on? Right? I mean, because you know, nowadays our streets are very clean. You know, there's not mud and junk all over it. What do we trample on? So I was walking around the other day, I was thinking, okay, we trample on cigarette butts. Okay? So there's cigarette butts, you know, sometimes you walk around, people are throw, you know, they smoke and then they throw all the cigarette butts on the floor and you walk past it. Now, why are there cigarette butts on the floor? It's because after you smoke the cigarette, the butt is useless. Isn't it? I mean, you don't see fresh cigarettes on the floor because obviously people pay a lot of money for these cigarettes which cost a lot of duty on it. And nobody's going to leave it on the floor so you can walk over it and waste their money. But you only walk over the cigarette butt because nobody smokes it anymore. It's useless to anybody. People are just always flicking it everywhere. Just the other day I saw someone flick it out of their car. I didn't know whether I should scold him or not. Right? But that's why you flick the cigarette butt on the floor because it's totally valueless and useless. And that's what God is saying, He's saying when you know who Jesus is and you recognize who Jesus is and you still turn your back on Him, you are treating Him like a cigarette butt. You are trampling on Him with contempt because you think that He's totally valueless and useless. He goes on to say, you are treating as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that has sanctified them or sanctified you. Now, what does this mean uh, uh, that you treat as an unholy thing, the blood of the comforted that has sanctified us? Now, what has the blood of Jesus done as we've looked over the last 10 chapters of Hebrews? The blood of Jesus is an extraordinarily powerful thing, isn't it? Because the blood of Jesus cleanses other people. It makes other people holy. The blood of Jesus is like this this holy thing which sanctifies other people, it separates and sets apart people for holiness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says this, okay, about the blood of Jesus. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
See, that's what the, the blood of Jesus does. That's what the, the cross of Jesus does. It makes you holy, it makes you clean, it washes you. Now, what happens when you turn your back on Jesus is you say that this blood of Jesus, which is infinitely valuable and cleansing and holy, is actually unholy. It's actually impure. In fact, this word that is uh, used as unholy, I don't know what your ESV other versions say, but I know it, it means basically unclean or impure. That means you're treating the, the blood of Jesus which sanctifies you, makes you holy, as an unclean, impure thing. So in Acts chapter 10, right, this word that, is, that Peter uses, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean, is the same word as the unholy thing. So this blood of Jesus which cleanses the whole world and, and can do what no other blood can do, you're basically saying it's an unclean thing. Now for us as, uh, I guess, Chinese or Indians or Singaporeans, for us, clean and unclean, those categories don't really matter so much to us, right? But for the Jews who are reading the book of Hebrews, uh, unclean things will be very familiar to them. Okay, so next slide. So unclean things for them would be some foods which they couldn't eat. Weasels, rats, lizards. Okay? So you can sort of get the picture, like, and pigs and all that sort of stuff. What they were doing, if they turned their back on Jesus, is to treat this blood of Jesus, which is exceedingly holy, and uniquely holy, and makes everybody else holy, the same level as a lizard, or a rat, or a weasel. Now, even for ourselves, uh, you know, rats and lizards have negative connotations, right? And that's exactly what you're doing. You're treating the blood of Jesus as if it's like an, a common, profane thing. And last of all, it says there, you will insult the Spirit of grace. Now, grace is what saves us, right? Because we do not deserve to be saved. That is, grace is the motivation which God had when He reached out and gave Jesus to us. We did not deserve Jesus. We did not deserve His sacrifice for us. But God, in His grace, gave us Jesus Christ. And it was the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which led Jesus to the cross. Alright, in chapter 9, verse 14, next slide, it says, How much more then will the blood of Jesus who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. See, it is the Holy Spirit which led Jesus to the cross. And that motivation was the grace and generosity of God. But when you turn your back on Jesus, when you turn your back on what Jesus has done for you on the cross, after you receive the knowledge of truth, it is like spitting in the Spirit's face and it's like insulting the Spirit and saying, well, we don't, I don't need your, your grace. I, I, I don't need your help. It is, it's something I can do myself. Now, how will God react when you do all these things against His Son? And, uh, when you do all these things against His Holy Spirit? Well, in verse 29, 30, it says that God will avenge God will repay and God will judge. 
And verse 30, 31 is a really interesting verse because it says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And this word here, dreadful, is exactly the same word as fearful. It is a fearful, awful, terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. See, it is, it is a fearful thing when you look forward to hell. And it's a fearful thing when you face the anger of a living God. Now, for these um, Hebrew Christians, the writer of the Hebrews has confidence that they will take heed to his warning. Alright, in verse 32, all the way to 38, he says to them, look, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you had endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence, it will be richly rewarded. You see, I think that's where the context of fear came in. Right? You know, like I keep talking about fear, right? I think it's because they were exposed to things which rightly, from a human perspective, were very fearful. They were exposed to verbal violence, to insults. They were exposed to physical violence, to persecution, but yet, for a time, they were standing side by side with those who were persecuted, and they were willing to be persecuted. But the problem was that that perseverance was being severely tested. And they were really tried in terms of their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why he keeps saying, look, if you're going to fear something, fear God, fear hell. If you just keep holding on just for a little while, he says, you'll be richly rewarded and you'll have better, more lasting possessions. See, when, when you're faced with things that you fear in this world, fear God more. Fear hell even more. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, up here, right, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show, show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body, sorry, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. See, here were real Christians, this is not a fiction, right? These are real Christians who were facing fearful circumstances. And the answer was to see that there was even something much greater to fear. Hell and a vengeful God. So what do you fear in this life that takes you away from Jesus? Uh, is it the fear of ridicule? Is it the fear of Losing out? Is it a fear of not getting ahead in your career? Not getting married? The fear of family pressure? I remember uh, a real story of this big rugby player who was a Christian at church, had the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he suddenly stopped coming to church. And when the pastor asked him and visited him and said, why did you stop coming to church? You know, why are you not being Christian anymore? This big rugby player said that 
He was worried about what his teammates would think. His fear was of what his teammates would think. And this is a big guy, right? Okay. Now, when you think of eternity, of the fires of hell and of the power of God, what is the opinion of your teammates? Is that something that you should be really fearful of? It's not, isn't it? Now, that's the problem we, fa- we face. We, we, instead of looking at the reality of hell and of the power of God, we fear this world instead. So, do you fear anything in this world which is taking you away from God? Are you turning away from Jesus, deliberately sinning in some way? Well, I hope that as we look at this passage, we must really take to heart the reality of hell and of the the power of a judging God. Now, in conclusion, I remember one thing I did fear in the past uh, quite a lot, probably reflected a bit on how little I studied, was the day before the exam, actually the night before the exam. You know that fear where you there's a like, like you know you're looking at your watch. Whoa, it's only like what eight hours before the exam, and like this, you know, all these books left on the table which uh, you should have revised months ago, but you haven't. And you're sort of thinking about how when you go into the exam, uh, you just don't know how to answer that question. How do you how do you pass? Now I think that uh, as Nick was saying before, there's only really one exam that we need to really pass, and that's the the exam on Judgment Day. And actually, we don't have to study very hard for it because all we have to do is hold on to Jesus. Because as we've been told again and again and again and again, Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice for us who's paid for our sins. It just keeps banging into our heads how important it is to hold on to Jesus and we cannot let go of Him in any circumstance. Now, I know that uh, usually after you leave a sermon, you're not supposed to be... I, I don't think many people are filled with much emotion. But I, I think that after we finish looking at this passage, we should be filled with a certain sense of, of emotion. Um, I don't usually watch horror movies. I, I, I hope you don't watch many horror movies too because I don't think they're very godly. But there are times where I've watched horror movies and I've left the cinema quite disturbed and terrified and telling myself that I should never watch the movie. But I think to a certain degree, when we look at this passage, it should fill us with emotion. It's not an intellectual thing. We should, there should be a, a visceral sense inside of us that this is something that we do not want to play with. And that hell is such a terrible thing. And heaven is such a great thing. And God should be our Heavenly Father and not our enemy. And I hope that as we look at this passage, we will really examine our lives and ask ourselves, are we really in Christ? Or are we deliberately turning away from Him? And are we sinning against Him? Because if we are, then this warning should really resonate in our minds to warn us and to, to really to take heed and to change our course of life if we are. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray for each and every one of us here that we will take heed of this warning 
that it will be never true for ourselves that we have deliberately sinned against you and turned away from Jesus. Dear Father, we pray that we will not fear this world so much, but rather we will fear the right things. That we will fear hell. We will fear the consuming fire. We will fear coming to the hands of a vengeful, judging God. And dear Father, as a result, you will help us to persevere day after day, no matter what happens to us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.